Book 1, Chapter 17 of The Mystical City of God, Volume 3, by the Venerable Sister Mary of Jesus of Agreda. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 1, Chapter 17, The Doings of Most Holy Mary After the Death of St. Joseph and Some of Her Dealings with the Holy Angels. Christian perfection is all included in the two states of life known to the Church, the active and the contemplative life. To the active life belongs all the operations of the body and the senses, practiced in our intercourse with our neighbor in temporal affairs. They embrace a wide field and include the practice of the moral virtues, which constitute the perfection of our active life. To the contemplative life belong the interior activities of the understanding and will, aiming at the most noble and the spiritual objects proper to the rational creature. Therefore, the contemplative life is more excellent than the active, and as it is more quiet, more delightful and beautiful, it is also more desirable in itself. It tends more directly toward the highest end, that is God, since it consists in the deepest knowledge and love of God, and thus participates of the qualities of eternal life, which is entirely contemplative. These two lives, the two sisters, Martha and Mary. Luke chapter 10 verse 41 the one quiet and thoughtful, the other solicitous and bustling, or those other two sisters and wives, Leah and Rachel, the one fruitful but ugly and with sore eyes, the other beautiful and gracious but sterile in the beginning. For the act of life is more productive, though in it the soul is taken up with numerous and various occupations, during which it is kept in disturbance and cannot raise itself up to penetrate the high things of God. While the contemplative life is most beautiful, although in the beginning not so productive, because its fruits are to be the result of prayer and merits. These presuppose great advance in the perfection and in the friendship of God, which draw down the liberality of God in favor of other souls, and produce the fruits of benediction, very copious and very precious. The combination of these two lives is the acme of Christian perfection, but this combination is very difficult. We do not see both kinds of life united in one person, but existing in a remarkable degree, separated in Martha and Mary, in Leah and Rachel, representing singly either the active or the contemplative life. In none of them could both the active and the contemplative life be properly represented on account of the difficulty of combining the practice of both in one subject to any great extent. Although the saints have labored much to attain this perfect combination, and all the teachers of spiritual life have sought to direct souls toward it, although there are so many instructions of learned and apostolic men, and the examples of the apostles and of the founders of the holy religion, who have sought to join contemplation with action, as far as is possible with divine grace, yet they always knew that the act of life, on account of the multitude of its interests and occupations concerning inferior objects, dissipates the heart and disturbs it, as the Lord tells Martha. Although those engaged in it may seek quiet and repose in order to raise themselves to the highest objects of contemplation, they never succeed in doing so during this kind of life without great difficulty and only for a short time, except by a special privilege of the Most High. On this account, the saints that wished to give themselves up to contemplation sought the deserts and solitudes, which are more favorable to that kind of life, and the other that pursued the active life and the care of souls 
by teaching and exhortation, set aside some of their time for retirement from exterior activity, and divided their days between contemplation and active life. By thus attending to both with perfection, they attained the merits and reward of the two kinds of life, founded on love and grace as their principal support. The Most Blessed Mary alone joined these two lives in a perfect manner. The highest and most ardent contemplation was not hindered by her occupations in the active life. In her was the solicitude of Martha without its excitement, and the quiet and rest of Mary without idleness of the body. She possessed the beauty of Rachel and the fruitfulness of Leah, and only this great and prudent queen truly exemplified what these sisters mysteriously typified. Although she attended upon her ailing spouse and supported him and her most holy son by her labor, she did not on that account interrupt or curtail her heavenly contemplations, nor was she under any necessity of seeking solitude or retirement in order to restore the quiet and peace of her heart and raise it beyond the seraphic regions. Yet when she found herself alone and deprived of the company of St. Joseph, she so arranged her exercises as to spend her time entirely in the interior activity of divine love. She immediately perceived by her insight into the interior of her most holy son that such was his will, that she should relax her labors by which she had attended to the wants of St. Joseph through night and day, and that instead of this hard labor, she should now join his majesty in his prayers and exalted works. The Lord also reminded her that for the moderate nourishment necessary to them, it would be sufficient to engage in labor only for a short time each day. For from that time on, they were to eat only once a day at eventide, having until now followed another custom out of regard to St. Joseph and in order to keep him consoling company at meal times. Thenceforward, Jesus and Mary ate but once a day at six o'clock in the evening. Many times their meal consisted merely of bread. At other times, the Blessed Lady added fruits or herbs, or perhaps fish, and this formed the only refreshment of the sovereigns of heaven and earth. Although their frugality and abstinence had always been great, yet it was greater after they were left alone, and they never dispensed themselves except in regard to the kind of food and in regard to the time of taking it. When they were invited, they ate a little of what was offered to them without abstaining entirely, commencing to practice the advice which Jesus was always afterwards to give to his disciples for their conduct while preaching the gospel. The simple food used by the heavenly sovereigns was served by the great lady to her divine son on her knees, having asked permission thus to serve it. Sometimes she also prepared it in that posture, moved thereto by the thought that it was to serve as nourishment to the true Son of God. The presence of St. Joseph was no hindrance to the most blessed mother in treating her son with all due reverence, not missing the least point of what this reverence toward him demanded. But after the death of St. Joseph, the great lady practiced prostrations and genuflections much more frequently, for there was always more freedom for such actions in the presence of her holy angels than in the presence of her spouse who was man. Many times she remained prostrate upon the ground until the Lord commanded her to rise. Very often she kissed his feet, at other times his hand. Usually she was filled with tears of the profoundest humility and reverence. She always stood in the presence of her divine son in posture of adoration and most ardent love awaiting his divine pleasure and intent upon imitating his interior virtues. 
although she had no faults, and was not guilty even of the least imperfection or negligence in the service and love of her most holy son, her eyes, like those of the servant and of the anxious handmaid mentioned by the prophet, only more devotedly, were continually upon the hands of her master, in order to gain the graces she desired for assisting her to greater perfection. It cannot enter into human thought what divine science aided her in understanding and performing so many and so great works, in union with the incarnate word, during the time they both lived alone together, without any other company than that of the holy angels, of their guard and service. They alone were the eyewitnesses, and were moved to admiration and to the highest praises, to see themselves so inferior in wisdom and purity to a mere creature, who was worthy of such holiness for she alone made a full return for the graces she received. With the holy angels, the queen of heaven entered into a sweet emulation and strife in regard to the ordinary and humble services, which were necessary for the comfort of the word of God and the well-ordering of their little dwelling, for there was no one to attend to these things except the heavenly lady and those most noble and faithful vassals and ministers, who for this purpose assisted in human forms, ready and anxious to attend to their work. The great queen wished to perform all the humble work herself, and with her own hands, to scrub the house and arrange its poor furnishings, wash the dishes and cooking utensils, and set the rooms in order. But these courtiers of the Most High, being truly courteous and more expeditious, though not more humble in their operations, usually anticipated these services before the queen could find time to perform them. Sometimes, and at certain periods, often she would find them thus at the work, which she was about to perform, and the holy angels having begun it beforehand. But at her word, they desisted, and allowed her to satisfy her humility and devotion in completing it herself. In order that they might not interfere with her affectionate desires, she said to the holy angels, Ministers of the Most High, you are such pure spirits that you reflect the light of the divinity for my illumination, and therefore, these low and servile occupations are not suitable to your state, your nature, and condition. These pertain to me, who, besides being only of earth, am the lowest of the mortals and the least of the servants of my Lord and Son. Permit me, my friends, to perform the service to which I am bound, since I can thereby gain merits, which on account of your station and dignity you do not need. I know the value of these servile works, which the world despises, and the Lord has given me this knowledge, not in order that I may allow them to be done by others, but that I may perform them myself. Our Queen and Lady, answered the angels, it is true that in thy eyes and in the estimation of the Lord, these are as valuable as thou knowest them to be, but if thou dost thereby earn the precious rewards of thy humility, Take notice that we would be deficient in obedience to the Lord, if we would knowingly omit any of these works permitted us by the Most High. The merits which thou losest in not performing this service, thou, O lady, canst easily make up by the mortification of denying thyself the desire of executing them. The most prudent virgin answered these arguments by saying, No, my masters and sovereign spirits, you must not look upon these works in such a light. For if you consider yourselves bound to serve me as the mother of your great Lord, whose creatures you are, remember that he has raised me from the dust to this great dignity, and that therefore my debt of gratitude for this benefit is greater than yours. As my obligation is so much the greater, my return must also be greater than yours. 
If you desire to serve my son as his creatures, I likewise must serve him on this account, and I am more bound to do so because I am the mother of such a son. Thus you will always find me more obliged than yourselves to be humble, thankful, and annihilated to the very dust in his presence. These and similar sweet and admirable contentions were going on between Most Holy Mary and her angels, and the palm of humility always remained in the hands of their queen and mistress. The world is justly ignorant of these mysteries, being unworthy of knowing them on account of its vanity and pride. Its foolish arrogance deems insignificant and contemptible these humble and servile occupations, while the courtiers of heaven, who know their value, appreciate them, and the queen of creation eagerly sought after them as very precious. But let us leave the world to its intentional or unconscious ignorance. Humility is not for the proud of heart, nor lowly service for purple and fine linen, nor scrubbing and washing for costly gems and silks, nor are the precious jewels of these virtues intended indiscriminately for all men. But if the contagion of worldly pride enters into the schools of humility and contempt of the world, namely into religious communities, and if this kind of humiliation is looked upon by them as a disgrace, we cannot deny that such sentiments are nothing but a most shameful and reprehensible pride. If we religious men and women despise the benefits of such humble occupations and count them a degradation like worldly people, how can we appear before the angels and our queen, who esteemed as great honors those very works which we look upon as contemptible and dishonorable? My sisters, daughters of this great queen and lady, to you I speak, who are called and transported to the bridal chamber of the great king, to true joy and exultation. Psalm 44, verse 16. Do not allow yourselves to be robbed of your right to be called children of such a mother. If she, who was the queen of angels and men, humbled herself by engaging in such lowly and trivial occupations, in scrubbing and busying herself in the most common handiwork, what presumption shall the haughtiness, vain pride, and want of humility of mere slaves appear to be in her sight and in the sight of the Lord God himself? Far from our community be such treason, fit only for Babylon and its inhabitants. Let us feel honored by that which the exalted queen esteemed as a crown of merit, and let it be for us a subject of most shameful confusion and a cause for dreadful reprehension, to be found wanting in the same zealous contention of humility which she entertained with the holy angels, let us eagerly seek after humble and servile occupation, and let us cause in the angels and heavenly companions the same emulation, which was so pleasing to our queen and to her most holy son and our spouse. We must understand that without real and solid humility, it is audacious to seek the reward of uncertain spiritual or sensible consolations, and to strive after them is daring foolishness, let us rather look upon our heavenly teacher, who is the perfect example of a holy and perfect life. In the great queen, the favors and delights of heaven alternated with her humble and servile occupations, for it happened many times when she was engaged in prayer with her son, that the holy angels in sweet, harmonious voices sang the hymns and canticles composed by Mary herself in praise of the infinite being of God and of the hypostatic union of the word with human nature in the second person of the Trinity. The blessed lady often asked the angels to repeat these hymns to her Lord and Creator, and alternating the verses with them, she added new hymns. 
they obeyed her, lost in admiration at the profound wisdom manifested in what she thus said and composed for them. Then, whenever her most holy son retired to rest or during his meals, she commanded them, as the mother of their creator, solicitous to entertain him, that they furnish a sweet music in her name, and the Lord permitted it, whenever she so ordered, therein yielding to the ardor of her love and veneration, with which she served him in his last years. In order to narrate all that has been revealed to me in this regard, a much longer discourse were necessary, and much greater ability than mine. From what I have insinuated, one can judge of some extent of other deep mysteries of this intercourse, and find motive and occasion to magnify and extol the great lady and queen, whom may all nations know and praise, as blessed among creatures, as the mother of the creator and redeemer of the world." Instruction given to me by the Queen of Heaven. My daughter, I wish that, before proceeding to narrate other mysteries, thou understand well all that the Lord commanded in regard to my intercourse with my holy spouse, St. Joseph. When I espoused myself to him, God commanded me to change the order of my meals and other exterior duties in order to accommodate myself to his circumstances, for he was the head of the family, and according to the common rule, I was the inferior. The same conduct was also followed by my most holy son, though he was true God, yet he subjected himself before the eyes of the world to him, who was thought to be his father. As soon as we were alone, after the death of my spouse, who was the occasion of this great change in our lives, we returned to our former way of living. The Lord did not expect St. Joseph to accommodate himself to us, but that we should accommodate ourselves to him, as the common order among men required. Nor did the Lord resort to miracles in order to escape the necessity of taking food, or of following ordinary human occupations, for in all things he acted as the teacher of all virtues, and of all perfection, being an example to parents and children, to prelates, superiors and superioresses, to subjects and inferiors, to parents, in order that they may learn to love their children, help them, nourish them, exhort them, correct them, and lead them on in the way of salvation without remissness or carelessness. To children, in order that they may learn to esteem, love, and honor their parents as the instruments of their existence, diligently obey them according to the natural law, which requires and teaches obedience, and repudiates the opposite as monstrous and horrible. To prelates and superiors, in order that they may love their subjects and direct them as their children. To inferiors, that they obey without resistance, even if they should in other respects be of higher and better condition in life. For insofar as the superior represents God, the prelate is always superior in dignity, but greater charity must always teach both to be of one spirit. In order that thou mayest acquire this great virtue, I desire that thou conform and accommodate thyself to thy sisters and inferiors without affection of formality, and that thou treat them with dove-like meekness and sincerity. Do thou pray when they pray, work and eat, and take thy recreation with them. For real perfection in a convent consists in conforming with the common spirit, and if thou act thus, thou wilt be guided by the Holy Spirit, who governs all well-regulated communities. Following this order, thou canst make progress in abstinence, eating less than the others, though the same amount of food is placed before thee. Without being singular, thou canst, 
with a little discretion, abstain from what thou desirest for the love of thy spouse and of me. If thou art not hindered by some grave infirmity, never absent thyself from the common exercises, unless perhaps obedience to thy superiors sometimes prevent thee. Be present at all common exercises with special reverence, attention, and devotion, for at such times thou wilt most frequently be visited by the Lord. I wish also that thou learn from this chapter to conceal carefully the special works thou undertakest in imitation of my own, for although I had no need of refraining from any work in the presence of St. Joseph, yet I was careful to add retirement as an additional observance of perfection and prudence, since retirement of itself makes good works more praiseworthy. But this is not to be understood of ordinary and obligatory works, since thou must give a good example and let thy light shine, avoiding any danger of scandal or cause of cavil. There are many works which can be done in secret and unobserved by the eyes of creatures, and which are not lightly to be exposed to the danger of publicity and ostentation. In thy retirement thou canst make many genuflections, prostrate in the dust, thou canst humiliate thyself, adoring the supreme majesty of the Most High, and offering thy mortal body, which oppresses thy soul, as a sacrifice for the disorderly inclinations against justice and reason. Thus thou wilt not reserve any part of thy being from the service of thy creator and spouse, and thou wilt force thy body to make up the loss which it causes to the soul by its passions and earthly affections. With this object in view, seek to keep it always in strict subjection, allowing it to partake only of those comforts which serve to keep it in proper condition for the activity of the soul, and not to pander to its passions and appetites. Mortify and crush it until it is dead, to all that is delightful to the senses, so that even the common actions necessary for life shall appear to thee more painful than agreeable, taste more of bitterness than of dangerous enjoyment. Although I have already on other occasions spoken to thee of the value of this mortification and humiliation, thou shouldest now, by this example which I have given thee, be still more convinced of their great value. I now command thee not to despise any of these acts or deem them of little consequence, but esteem all of them as precious treasures to be gained for thyself. In this thou must be covetous and avaricious, eagerly grasping the occasions of doing servile work, such as scrubbing, cleaning the house, engaging in the most menial services, and attending upon the sick and infirm, as I have said before. In all of these works, place me before thy eyes as an example, in order that my carefulness and humility may urge thee on, full of joy to be able to imitate me, and shame for any negligence therein. If I, who never had displeased or offended the Lord since the beginning of my existence, judge this virtue of humility so necessary in order to find grace in his eyes, and be raised up by his right hand, how much more is it necessary for thee to humble thyself to the dust, and annihilate thyself in his sight, who wast conceived in sin, and hast so often offended him? Psalm 50 verse 7 Humiliate thyself to nothingness, and acknowledge that what being the Most High has given thee, thou hast but ill employed, and that therefore thy very existence should be a subject of humiliation to thee. Thus wilt thou at last find the treasure of grace. End of chapter 17